Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. S Y S. Oh, tonight we got them. Goldie, the Sulk, and JC. And it starts right now. Oh, welcome back to another episode of a typical disgusting display podcast. Did that? Did you hear that hissing? I did. I heard a hiss and I got scared. Yeah, we can, but it's gone now. It's a podcast. It It doesn't matter what the podcast is. There's a go. (laughs) Good, 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 good. For writers, by writers who hate writing, et cetera. I'm nervous today, guys. I'm nervous because we're talking to Michael McKeon today. Yes. Legend. Comedy with all due respect to all of our other guests, they're all garbage. (laughs) Oh, my God. Michael McKeon. Is the man. He's now the one to top. Yeah. So hopefully we'll get someone who, you know, in six months makes us go, everyone, including Michael McKeon, is garbage. (laughs) Is there anyone? I don't know. (laughs) Oh, wait. I like that one. First joke of the day. First joke of the day. (laughs) I like that one. Garbage joke. So uh, the three of us have been doing something uh, uh, together separately. Uh, And what we have been doing... No, JC, I, I, I know what your first thought was. Put away your dirty mind. <laughs> um, we have been watching The Golden Bachelor. Bachelor. While masturbating. Yes, that was Separately. the other thing. He Separately. knew it. He knew it. Hive-minded. So, yes, we have been watching The Golden Bachelor. And Goldie, this was your... I mean, I was going to get to it. I, I've been watching The Bachelor since it came on. So I was very excited to watch this. But you kind of spurred us on, like, hey, let's watch this and talk about it. So I, you know... I'm really enjoying it. I'm really interested to hear what you two think of the show so far. Goldie, have you ever watched it? I've never watched a frame of The Bachelor prior to this. I didn't watch every frame. So (laughs) all I know is sort of what I've heard, which is, and I remember because at the time I was working for talk shows, Trista being a name and Ryan being a firefighter. Mm-hmm. And I believe when I was on Kilborn, there was a guy, Bob the Bachelor, who was kind of a yeah. goofus from the Bob, original. Bob Guinea. Yes. He okay. was the funny. He was the Bob funny Guinea? bachelor. Wow. Yeah, he was he was bachelor funny then because when he came on Kilborn, he was not real funny. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> bachelor <laughs> funny. He was goofy. He was goofy. Sure. Right. Okay. Sure. <laughs> so and I've always said that if I got on the show that 
oh, that sorry. I would spend the entire time working on my jump shot. I would never go to any of the events. I would and just be, be on Bachelorette. Shooting. Would you be on Bachelorette? Yeah. Well, yeah. either. I'd be living in the mansion. I'd have my own basketball hoop, and yeah. I would be working on my jump shot the entire time. And that would coaches. probably work because she would be like, "He's so aloof. He doesn't He's so care. committed. He's so committed." Yeah. Now, w- when you're practicing your jump shot, would you yell "bird" after every shot? <laughs> It depends. Sometimes I'd yell bird. Sometimes I'd yell curry. I was going to curry. <laughs> sometimes I'd yell PJ Tucker from the corner. <laughs> Armand Gilliam. <laughs> uh, so I had not seen any of The Bachelor. and um, So I, there's a lot to talk about. But the, the first thing is just from a creative standpoint, as writers – how can we possibly compete with this? <laughs> yeah. It's it's so much better than what we do. It's so true. much more engaging. Like you go, these are real people. Yeah. We're inventing people and giving them <laughs> fake names and situations. Or you can right. just watch real people. So who's going like, I want to see what those fake people are doing yeah. in that uh-huh. fake world it's of true. nonsense. Or you go, watch these real people. So already I'm like... You, yeah. why we're, I, I give up. We're irrelevant. We're irrelevant. At so you point. enjoyed it. Yeah. You found you found it entertaining. Okay. Well, <laughs> I cannot believe that in 2023 they have a show where it's like guys are the ultimate, and getting married to a guy <laughs> is that's the best, tr- and that's the only. <laughs> The only point of life for women is to stay alive so they can maybe marry a guy. <laughs> but it's a guy like Gary. Yeah. Gary is Gary right. is the golden bachelor, so I, by the way. Like the younger people version would not interest me because and, and this is the same whether I hear, you know, sometimes younger members of the staff will talk about their dating life or younger people in my life will be in a romantic situation. And what they don't understand from the perspective of someone who's 50 and been married for a while. Right. It doesn't matter all the stupid little situations you're talking about where it's like, I yes. don't know if he thinks, and we need to m- maybe make a commitment. You don't need to do anything. Not- <laughs> you're so irrelevant. And this situation is so irrelevant. And there's a, a billion people, there's six billion people. So d- whether you and this guy or girl, like... Keep hooking up or marry or have kids. It's a, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Well, True. here's the thing, Goldie, and and you probably both sense this just from what The Bachelor is. But so when The Bachelor started, it was you know at the time it was a, kind of an original uh, take on Concept. an old idea, like a dating show. Yeah. But the way that they presented it with this Bachelor Mansion and it's one guy and twenty girls and the, you know the reality aspect of it. It, it felt kind of fresh and new. Over the years, what has happened with the advent, you know, because The Bachelor started before social media existed. Oh, now, right. The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and Bachelor in Paradise, it's all just a factory to create Instagram Drama. followers, to become yeah. influencers, to become someone who is recognized from Bachelor Nation so they can go on their Instagram and sell skincare products and have their clothes paid for and have their trips paid for. And they're all, it's, you know, I watch it so cynically now because you can see that's what they're all doing. And you see it very clearly. The people who get cut, you know, in the in sort of the first half of the show, 
kind of struggle to find any of that. But then the higher up you get, if you can make it to like the final four, you are entrenched in this bachelor machine. You will be asked to come on Bachelor in Paradise and you will be asked to come back if you're entertaining there. And you get more and more followers, more and more influence. What I love about the Golden Bachelor is they don't care about any of that. They don't know yes. anything Ooh. about social media, really. You know, right. they're they're 70 plus. And so they don't give a shit about that. So it feels like it's stripping it back to what it kind of was supposed to be in the first place. That's what I really like about it. And Goldie and, and JC, we both talked about this separately. Gary is a very compelling lead character. They picked well. They chose this guy, and the minute he came out and started telling his story about his late wife like and crying. crying, I was crying. I was all in. And, and Goldie, you, I think we both sort of noted the picture uh, of his late wife that he was holding when he was getting very emotional. Uh, it, it brought something to mind. I'm pretty sure it was the same picture John Candy showed Steve Martin in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles <laughs> of his ex-wife. Yes, it's very close. It's it is like the same close. picture. Yes. <laughs> if That would be so great if we could prove that that was the case and just debunk. Well, it's like yeah, either he's a genuinely great guy, and I I believe he is, or he is... And this has occurred to me a few times while watching this. He is an American psycho style, Ooh. incredible actor, yes. sociopath. I was who thinking that is too. there to get TV famous and no. is not genuinely looking for love. Disagree. Uh, and, you know, having had a, a lifetime of seemingly maybe only having sex with one person <laughs> to just. Seemingly sort of in a socially acceptable way and an easy way have sexual encounters with many women. Right. Ooh, the cynical, cynical. It's almost what like a- he's a little yeah, too suave. I feel like there's a part he's- of me that doesn't trust, like how come you're so confident when you walk into this room addressing all these women? And I, there's something about him that feels too strong where mm. yeah he's one too se- good at it yes oh, instantly come on. it's JC, like meet the american male come on like they're, they're too pushing strong. like the, the the soil on the wife's casket hasn't even been mashed down to flat yet <laughs> seven like years a, like a rounded mound and he's just kind of like hey so i'm really enjoying he's the rounded <laughs> mound of, of rebound you. relationships yeah well the uh, another hilarious thing that occurred to is that these women are all fighting for the chance to live on a lake in Indiana. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it's it. like, this Wait. was the life she dreamed of. It's like, God, man, you know, there are That's lakes all in, in Michigan. There's kind of famous lakes. There's, you know, in Illinois, there, there's better lakes out there. I love that you go to Illinois to top it. One of the, <laughs> it tops in, the, a lake, lake in Indiana. <laughs> yeah, well, we don't know. We've never been there. One of the hilarious things that, that I thought is that his name is Gary. He's yeah. from Indiana. So it's oh, Gary, Indiana. Indiana. Yeah. There he is. <laughs> But uh, I like I did find myself wondering. Um, he he does this thing, and I pointed out to you that you were also very good. When I remember we were single and right. out. Uh oh. Uh, so and I was terrible at it, and I think it. <laughs> it uh, by watching you, I got better at it. But wow. I've still never 
internalized it as a skill that Gary can be in a conversation and a person will say something that merits no response. Like if if someone said something, I would go, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. At best. Like I just go, like these women are just saying stuff. Like, and it's not conversation worthy. There's nothing that you would add to. And I've heard you do it in interviews that we do on this podcast. And I've heard you do it to me on this podcast. (laughs) But you're very good at slowly rolling the ball back with a little like a laugh. It wasn't funny, but you're laughing. And it's not like an outrageous laugh, but it's enough to I'm engaged. The Japanese, and I know this from college, they call it Aizuchi, nonverbal cues he's giving them back and he's giving them he's saying something back that's equally fucking insipid (laughs) that somehow keeps this thing going (laughs) that like then creates the illusion of romance because you're both smiling and talking but about what right (laughs) first of all you mentioned that that would make me so angry when i was single where i'd be like i could engage you on topics (laughs) from, from foreign policy to sports to science and meanwhile this idiot is just talking to you about nothing and of course you like him better but he's he's so good at it well here's the funny thing because you mentioned this to me the other day and the, the 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 irony of it is that so tal and i were watching golden bachelor together and at some point while watching it tal turned to me after Gary wasn't doing Izuchi engaging yeah. these women. And she was like, by the way, here's a cheat sheet. All you have to do is talk to me that way. Talk to oh. me that way. So clearly, <laughs> clearly that muscle has atrophied over 10 years of relationship. <laughs> but also, so instantly, of course, being the, the asshole that I am, she was like, just talk to me that way. So the whole night I was like, Oh, you know, Tal, um, I, it is so wonderful uh, what you were telling me earlier about your family. <laughs> it's the diction. It's the, the wonderful. Yeah. yeah. See, the, I don't uh, like the it. The wow. The, yeah. it's, he says nothing negative. He, there's a lot of I feel statements. And, I've and also, I'm yeah, listening. When he said, I'm listening, if he said that to me, I'd well, be Well, he's so- not, because he has fucking hearing aids. He's not, that's the other thing. He's not hearing a word, I'm sure. And he's just smiling. <laughs> that's hilarious. Just, I would be so he's out, He's hearing the ball though. game. Uh, he's <laughs> hearing a baseball game. So, Volume off, just blissfully. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> I think, well, though, I- because they're so desperate for attention, they need it. But if I heard that from someone, I would be so out. I'd be like, this guy's so full of shit. Like, if if somebody said to me, now I'm listening, in my, mm-hmm. my internal speech would say, oh, this guy's a tool. But <laughs> if I okay, but were fa- desperate... Fast forward 30 <laughs> yes, years. exactly. And I'm, I'm the new Gary, and I'm <laughs> right. going... JC, <laughs> you and Stu seem to have the most wonderful connection. Yes, exactly. And it reminds me of my <laughs> wife exactly. and yes. our connection, and she played the bass. Yeah. <laughs> that works. It would totally work. That works. Right. Could I tell like... you, Goldie, I was hanging on every word. <laughs> he does. He leans in. And there's, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. a real, like, people who are dating should just study it if study him yeah if they want to make a i don't know like i don't even know if people want a connection anymore if it's just a volume game where everyone's like screw it like i'll go back on the app and (laughs) i'm buying 
I'm buying in on Gary though. I I'm, do, I'm buying in. And I think it's genuine. I think the women. I, think I don't genuine. get the feeling that they're faking it. Do you, JC? Like they seem genuinely. They seem enthralled. genuine. Yes. Yeah, oh my I, god. By, yes. By the way, early early favorite for me among the women, yeah. and I don't think she's going to make it that far. Is the silver haired woman? I forget her name. It's like Clara or no, something no, like Edith, that. No, no, Edith. She's Edith. Edith. Lati- maybe Le- she's Latina. Yes. Yeah. She's, yeah. I, I don't know why she's not getting more airtime. She's beautiful. I know. She's beautiful. She yeah. looks like she's, you know, like if the Fantastic Four did like a future <laughs> yes. episode, you know, she yes. would be one of them. But it, it and, and I, I do think. Print, print, the I one think, who dated Prince is going to go very far. I couldn't stand her right oh, away. She instantly gross. reminded yeah. me of like the women who were on the regular Bachelor, like yeah. the 20, 20 year olds. And I, I didn't like that. Um, do you think at any point. To gamify this, they're going to bring on, say, three 45-year-olds. <laughs> That's a really I, good idea. Because I thought that there was like a cutoff age. It well, seems 60, like 50 seems to be or 50. There's definitely no one younger than 50. No, six, it has no, to be 60. There are people in their 50s, I believe. Oh, really? I think really? that's true. Oh, I, I didn't think realize. so. Which is crazy because it's like in th- in three years, could you see yourself going on there to like <laughs> make no. goo-goo eyes at some, you know, oh, JC would JC would wreck shop. She would go on <laughs> of there. Of course. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that it a compliment? Be, I'm not it sure. It would be over. It would be the Vince, Vince Carter. It's over. It's over. <laughs> well, also, you know, it's, what it, it does highlight how... Guys just die first, and there are so many women. If you can somehow stay alive, this is a phrase in the Jewish community. You know that, what is like it? when, when a, uh, it, it's when a Jewish woman loses her husband, she becomes a widow. When a Jewish husband loses his wife, a star is born. Oh my God! <laughs> That's wow, perfect. Because a, a friend of mine got divorced last year and i was trying to cheer him up because we're getting older and and he was kind of bemoaning that and i said listen there are so many women who remain attractive to us who we remember when we were young that you have a shot at for real yeah i was saying um that's nice let's go on paulina porizkova's instagram (laughs) sure enough she's dating a guy who looks like me but older Wow. Like, yeah, yeah. Paulina Poroskova is in play for a guy like me <laughs> yeah. right now. I love that Sharon you Stone up. is Ooh. in play for a guy like me. Yes. Right. For right. sure. Yeah. Yes. Heather sure. Locklear <laughs> would have to consider going out. <laughs> Pamela Anderson would have oh, to consider. <laughs> yeah. You don't yeah. know. <laughs> you don't know. And you so don't. you see Great this point. with Gary that it's like. Probably, you know, in his 30s, 40s, he's a dumb, dumb businessman from Indiana or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, they're not going to look at him. But now yeah. it's like, he well, everyone so- else is dead. And as my aunt, who, you know, was very active into late in life, uh, said, all I need is for a man who can drive at night. <laughs> oh, and, and he can't, he can't so- even when the lights don't turn on, he that, can oh, drive that, at No, night. that's right. It's like, she wants to go out. In the dark and have fun, 
that was pulse pounding that the on a, yeah, the when Califor- his headlights- a California <laughs> freeway for the first time and the lights aren't working. And we got to talk for a second about that diner date. Oh, what was yes. going on there? It that turned into like, what was that? Flash uh, mob. 500 Flash days mob. of summer or whatever the hell that was, <laughs> where they're all suddenly just dancing and they're making us feel like they're dancing to Don't Stop Believing, but you can tell that they're not because right. none of the dance moves really synced <laughs> and, up. Right. Yes. Um, but I, I want to go back the- to the for a second to the the point about the dumb conversation and the other date which was the book cover so this was this is an example oh, of yeah yeah so this so-called date with a book cover like i i can't imagine doing that once with one the romantic woman. the romantic novel cover right yeah, yes the photo and shoot, like yeah. i would have just instantly been such a sour puss and like <laughs> hating it and goofing on it and of course he's taking it very seriously so then or the-, the woman puts on the, the bridal gown and starts crying. Yeah. And at that point, I would have been like, just get in the fucking car or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Like, I would have been like, come on, this is nonsense. Like, because she starts saying like, you know, and I haven't worn a bridal dress since my wedding. Well, why would you have? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, I didn't think of that. It's a garment made to be worn only once. And it's like, oh, I haven't worn a tuxedo. It's a fucking pair of pants. Who cares? And so, but he sort of like. He, it worked you know, on him. He got damp eyes. And yes. He slowed down. He slowed his breathing. He got in sync with her. True. Yeah. And was, and was like enabling this fucking nonsense tantrum of a 60 year old yeah. this childish and then he, he gave her the first whatever that rose is first the, impression rose. yeah or, the first yeah that night like that. right she yeah. like she got the first rose that night so it's like yeah, it really it worked. worked on him yeah, yeah. the waterworks work uh you know what i just i'm on board with gary i'm glad we're watching we're gonna have to probably talk about it a couple more times yeah. as we go forward because yeah. there's we have to. Uh, you can see in the previews that they show that that you know, it's not all going to go well. Why do you think Kathy is still on? Do you know, remember Kathy? She's like skeletal. Is she the the sort of Nancy Pelosi looking woman? Exactly that one, yes. Why do you think she's still on? Do you think the producers are keeping her on? Well, that's a possibility. I think the producers do that a lot with the regular Bachelor. There are sometimes you see the women and you're like, God, she stinks, but they're just so loud and like attract attention. Goldie, you have a question. I have a theory about this. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I think Gary, again, going back into this American psycho theory, (laughs) I think Gary is a Svengali. I think Gary knows how it would look for him to kick off all the oldest women or for him to kick off the diverse women. Yes. And he's just sort of smartly keeping the options there. So it's it's a sort of bulletproof way of uh, showing he's a good guy because it's like he's not not biased, he's not ageist, he's not racist, he's not all these things. Like he's self-aware enough and aware enough of like the what happens in social media to be playing this very smartly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that explains uh, it for sure. Yeah, I I agree that he is, and we're certainly looking forward to the rest of the season. Well, so. one la- one final yeah, thing I just sure. have to talk about is the fact that <laughs> you know these people are in their sixties, seventies, and they make them live together in a room and share a bathroom and oh. bunk beds. Seems too? insane because I would just if I I couldn't even share a hotel room right. with a friend for one night. I think it's I for reality television's sake, you know, to create the, this discomfort so that they'll start turning on each other. Otherwise, oh, it's going to get boring, point. right? That's a good point. You know, it's funny because 
the one of the things the bachelor is now famous for is that first night when there are the most contestants there you know 20 plus women or whatever they never finish until it's morning so they've been up that's weird all night and so we always comment tall and i like how stressful that is like just the idea of pulling an all-nighter and tall was like when we were watching it this time she's like i think it's unfair to have anyone over 45 pull an all-nighter like i couldn't i know i would just i would be like jimmy kimmel's aunt Asleep yes. on was, the couch. Yes. No, I would leave. I mean, I, 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 I I'm asleep at like nine forty five every night. Like, yeah, me no too. Fucking way. I have a bedtime reminder on my phone first set for every night at nine thirty five. <laughs> it goes off. Oh my I'm like, god! All right, time to start heading to bed. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Makes me. Feel... No, JC's a night owl. What time yeah. do you guys wake up? Uh, early. Well, I first I wake up. At two, and then at three thirty, <laughs> and then at four forty-five. I know and then that finally feeling. Finally, at six thirty. I know that feeling. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Oh, but it's fun. And thank you, Goldie, for spurring that on. That's really, really fun. And now something that's not so fun. Let's get in to Johnny Jokes. Whoa, from Hollywood, home of the Golden Bachelor, here's Johnny. And, and what a news week to do this. <laughs> oh, just the perfect week. Um, I'm going to, I have a few this week, a couple extras maybe. I'm going to start off with a norm because it's not a closer. It's like okay. a norm jab. So here we go. <laughs> well, Japanese scientists have created an MRI that is capable of reading and interpreting your dreams. If marketed to the public, scientists believe the machine will be popular with females, ladies, and women. <laughs> All three. Okay, now here we go to the regular junk. Well, uh, Johnny's back. <clears throat> A new study has revealed that in addition to dreams about falling, dogs often dream about their owners. Uh, although it should be noted that for Joe Biden's dog, that's just one dream. Falling and owners. Here oh. we go. Broadcaster <laughs> Al oh. Michaels. Oh, yeah. that that was all by b- poor listening comprehension. That deserved a laugh. I saw your face. I was that not deserved encouraged. a laugh. I just, I just <laughs> that's okay. It's okay. I mean, I, I, I opposite of Garyed out there. <laughs> Here we we can ISO a laugh for you. Go ahead. We'll cut yeah. it in. <laughs> there you go. Oh, now I'm now I'm enthused. Uh, well, uh, broadcaster Al Michaels. 
revealed in a recent interview that he has never knowingly eaten a vegetable in his life. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, I don't know whether I believe him or not, but either way, he's full of shit. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> uh, here's an interesting story. Several members of the Amish community are reportedly being shunned after the recent test of the emergency alert system revealed that they had been hiding cell phones. Uh, never missing an opportunity, ABC has just announced their new mid-season show, Amish. Okay. Um, ish. That's good. Okay. You uh, should well, do that. You should. <laughs> uh, well, this week marks the 30th anniversary of the movie Falling Down. When reached for comment, Michael Douglas thanked President Biden for keeping the title in the zeitgeist. Oh, uh, zeitmeetgeist. You could see that one a mile away. And finally, finally, comedy legend Chevy Chase celebrated his 80th birthday last weekend. Uh, the Vacation and Fletch star spent the day surrounded by friend, uh, by loved ones. Well, there were people there. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's good. Very good. Very good. Johnny, uh, too. Well, here we go. Well, you've probably heard by now that the country of Israel suffered a brutal terrorist attack this week. Uh President Biden offered unwavering support to Israel and its leaders, saying he'll fall by them for as long as it takes. <laughs> I can see that one coming. Love it. In response to the attacks, uh, Los Angeles is adding extra security to all Jewish locations. Uh, these include schools, synagogues, and Seth Rogen's bong. <laughs> <laughs> well... <clears throat> After posting incendiary comments supporting Hamas on social media, porn star Mia Khalifa was fired from Playboy. Ooh. Yeah, it was a tense scene as she was ordered to remove any company property from her office and butthole. <laughs> well, according to a new study, running twice a week is as effective as ADD drugs. And college students everywhere are now trying to snort running. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, here we go. Uh, archaeologists have discovered the oldest ever unused condom. Ooh. Yeah, it was in Nick Cannon's wallet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's just a walk-off home run. That's a, oh. that's a, that's a Johnny Johnny. Yes, yeah. that's, that's a, a classic, classic joke. <laughs> okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Bite clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Bite. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? 
Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Oh, fans, folks. Gosh, we are excited today. I've been nervous about this all day. I don't know about the, know. the rest of you, but uh, I'm sure maybe Michael's been very nervous too. So we um, we have a fantastic guest today. Uh, he's someone that we have been watching, listening to our most of our lives. He's been making us laugh hysterically uh, as characters like David Sade Hubbins in Spinal Tap, Chuck McGill in Better Call Saul. Uh, he's a Grammy winner and an Academy Award nominee. Folks, please welcome Mr. Michael McKeon to the podcast. Michael, thank you for being here. My pleasure so far. So far, <laughs> shit. Oh, I feel I feel still ill at ease. Um, where where are we? Uh, where are you talking to us from today? This is uh, the palatial uh, uh, master bedroom of my home yes. here in Los Angeles. All right, so we're all in town. We're all yeah. in town. Sure. Good. Um, I was doing a little reading up on you because uh, obviously I've seen you in a bunch of things, um, but I feel like I didn't really know everything about you. Uh, one very interesting fact that I came upon is that your your father uh, was one of the American founders of Decca Records. No. <laughs> this is Goldie's. You have no idea yeah. how happy no, no, he makes no. Goldie. I, listen, I, this, I've, I've dealt with this before. My father was started at Decca Records in the late 40s when they went to LPs. Okay. He was he had he had done a little bit. He'd worked for Dictaphone. He had done some, you know, some kind of odd things like that after the war. And he wanted to be a writer. And so he was a journalist. He he did he wrote for Downbeat and Saturday Review. But he also he was very interested in music and he wound up at Decca when they first started going from 78 singles into LPs. Right. So it was like he was there at the beginning of that. Decca Records was founded in 1939, I think, and my dad was just kind of starting at uh, college, I think. Uh, so, okay. yeah, I know it's just one of those factoids that got uh, kind of bent in the, in the postal system. Well, again, you've made Goldie very happy because we've had a theme now in the last few podcasts where guests have been correcting me and Goldie. Nothing makes Goldie happier, so we're off yeah. we're off and running. But to to that point, I mean, did you have like were you immersed in music in your household where was the record player going all the time and what kind of stuff were you listening to well my like i say my dad was a big he was a big jazz fan and uh we wrote pieces for esquire for downbeat and he had a regular column at saturday review uh reviewing new jazz albums wow probably for a year or so there but uh, yeah, he just, he loved jazz. I didn't get it, you know. I had to find my own music. I had to wait until the mid-50s right. when I was a little kid. And um, and I just, I became a big rock and roll fan. And because that was my music. Dad's music was, yeah. so <laughs> it wasn't until my, my 30s that I really began appreciating a lot of that stuff. Because yeah. it's, it's hard. It's hard unless you kind of relax into it. And you're not relaxed when you're a kid. You're, everything yeah. is just around the corner. And since you can't see around the corner, you just assume it's something bad. So being uh -huh. a kid is being very tense. I think once you're kind of an official adult and you can do whatever you want, you, your mind opens up a little bit. 
you know yeah. and uh so i you know i became more of a jazz fan it's still not my number one but i got to appreciate you know who's really cranking it and who's just you know tugging on it yeah. <laughs> as, as someone who plays guitar you know i in the last 10 years it's become so much easier to pick up information about guitar with youtube and such but even like when i learned in the 80s the information was so scarce like how how were you able to learn the instrument? Did you have a teacher or were you self-taught? Or Well, what happened was the early 60s, when I was in my kind of mid-teens, is when the folk the folk thing really hit. Yeah. So there was your Peter, Paul, and in the commercial area, there was your Peter, Paul, and Mary, and there were, you know, Kingston Trio and all this stuff. And then, you know, you just, your, 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 your groovier friends would kind of turn you on to, well, this guy, you know, this guy pete seeger has been around forever he's a communist and, <laughs> uh, to, the, to the woody guthrie and of course i had some red diaper baby friend uh friends who's you know who knew all the songs from the wobblies and everything they were just that yeah you know. so i had one friend named named uh joey klein who really helped me with guitar and stuff um i had a friend named chris guest uh, chris best not chris guest oh. i had a oh. chris guest later on that comes a little later right. and um we we played guitar we sang we you know we sang in trios and duos and stuff so you just learned enough to get along you learned a lot of chords you know and when you're first starting out you go well i'm not going to be able to do that's an f chord i'm going to skip all the f chords <laughs> right. Got a cross and everything i can't do that <laughs> totally. so it was really just kind of necessity that you know i wanted to perform i was doing a lot of acting at school too i was in all these plays and so I knew I wanted to perform. So, you know, I learned guitar to accompany myself and I wrote songs and stuff. And yeah. Yeah. I can yeah. relate. As far as technique goes, I, I uh, it's just bit by bit. I'd got, I got sheet music with chord, little chord charts on a little, whatever they call them, diagrams yeah. on them. And I learned all these chords and I learned how to play a little bit. And it's just mainly from performing, I think. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting. Um, you talk about that time period in the folk music, and obviously we'll talk a little later about A Mighty Wind, which was hilarious. Um, but so right after that period was the was Beatlemania. Yeah, so yeah. how how did that hit you? Were you were you a little too old and kind of like who are these guys, or were you like well, this is well, awesome? I was I was ground zero. I was sixteen. Oh, 15. perfect. Yeah, exactly, and. Uh, yeah, it turned everything upside down. It was literally the Monday morning after they appeared on the Ed Sullivan show for the first wow. time. Literally every guy combed his hair forward. Right. <laughs> every, whatever we got. And it just, everything changed overnight. Yeah. Uh, the girl I was seeing at the time, very nice girl, she came into school and she was literally giggling all day. <laughs> wow. Just because the Beatles had entered her, excuse me, entered her. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah. And it was just, yeah. Beatlemania was really fun from the ground. I'm jealous. You got to live through that. I'm jealous. <laughs> uh, well, you, you also, you missed the JFK assassination. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. You know, which this, uh, which Beatlemania really, really kind of was a, it was an excellent and very fancy bandaid. And we were, we were very happy to have it. I, I it's that. interesting that you bring that up because I, I totally agree with that. I think a lot of the Beatles' success in America was like, look over there, look at these cute guys, and, and yeah. forget about that other terrible thing. And I, I, I just since we're talking about it, I want to move forward a decade and talk about 
um, we'll get back to your college years and stuff and meeting David and, and Chris Guest and all your the buddies, that Harry Shearer, that you worked with. But so you come mm-hmm. on to uh, Laverne and Shirley at the January of 76, mm-hmm. and it's the number one show in its first week, which is insane. Um, <laughs> but I sort of have this feeling that like America in the 70s is coming out of Vietnam. It's coming out of Watergate. So then a show like Happy Days and a show like Laverne and Shirley feels like it's doing sort of the same thing the Beatles were doing uh, a decade earlier. Mm. Well, and also it was it was about events uh, in the past. Yes. Yes. It was was when the 50s were hot. (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs) Right. In 1975, I, David Lander, Harry Shearer and myself, we were known as the Credibility Gap. And we were hired by Fred Willard to pick up three dates with the ace truck that the ace trucking company had been booked for, but they fell apart. Mike Mislove and Bill Saluga left the act, but we had these, they, they had these dates. So Fred hired us. He said, look, why don't you guys come do some of your stuff? We'll do mostly our stuff. We'll call ourselves the credit. We'll call ourselves the ace trucking company, but you'll always get, you know, we'll, we'll bill you if you need. And I said, no, 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 we get it. We get it. So we learned all their stuff. And then we did our pieces. And one of the pieces we did was called Roy Cohn. And it was a parody of Rock On. The, the uh, Do you know this? Mm-hmm. Rock On. So we, it was that background. And I would come out in one with my hair kind of nice and, and you know, ducktail like I used to be able to do. <laughs> and I was seeing these, you know, these lyrics. It was, um, 50s are dead and gone. Thanks to showbiz, they linger on. Even though it was one big yawn. Rock on. We <laughs> got the Roy Cohn in there just because it was fun to sing. Right. Uh, big deal, big deal, golden age. A buck twenty-five was the minimum wage. Wow. <laughs> so we were already a little cynical about it. But then there was this, you know, there was this huge show on Broadway called Grease. And then there was this huge Happy Days hit. And American Graffiti was that was a little bit later, and it was about the 60s, early 60s anyway. But it was that same nostalgia thing. It's it's a powerful drug. Yeah, nostalgia. Yes, every every generation yearns for, you know, the past. Or Always a version of the past that they never experienced. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I think it's 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 crazy now because we're living through an era now where the nostalgia is focused on the nineties and then, and even on the early aughts, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, it's crazy that we're, we're reaching back to, as you said, before we started recording, what seems like five years ago and (laughs) we're all trying to swim in it. Um, But (laughs) let's go back a little bit. And, uh, and I love that answer, but you, uh, I was reading that you and David Lander uh, who were college buddies, Mm -hmm. basically kind of, picked up this Lenny and Squiggy stuff from really just kind of listening to the people around like dopes around you in the dining hall kind of thing. And you started aping them. Is that, is that how that came to be? Well, we had both, David grew up in the Bronx, went to school in the Bronx. I went to school on Long Island, uh, North Shore uh, Mm -hmm. high school. And so we had different versions of, uh, of those people. You know, it was the, the the guys at the at the table over there who made the most noise. Those are the ones that I watched. And in in the Bronx, David had his own set. Yeah. You know? And uh, so we just kind of we both did these characters that were very similar. 
and had no business in Milwaukee, either one of them, you know, they were <laughs> right. very New York characters. Yeah. yeah. So we just, they made us laugh and they made our little friends laugh. We had a, uh, David's dorm room became known as the malt shop. Mm-hmm. And would, we would meet there and get high if anyone had anything and, and we just make each other laugh. And David was kind of the, uh, kind of the MC. He called himself the DL, David Lander. David Lander <laughs> was his name at the time. And so uh, he would kind of host the evening and we'd bring on and he'd just throw to you. And whatever he said you were, you'd have to come on and be the guest. Right. And, you know, so we, uh, it, was, wow. it was me and him, Tony McKay, uh, Loudon Wainwright, um, George Curtis, who's a wonderful singer songwriter. And um, yeah, we would just, it was a great way to kill your time when you weren't going to do any work anyway. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, it's hard to imagine anyone seriously being a greaser like in this day and age like you look back on that and you kind of say like so was this something that i mean what was your reaction to it as it was happening were you like i want to slick my hair back and be that to fit in or were you like this is absurd these people are crazy it was what we really lived with and it was a lot of it i think you know my sister was three years older than me and she she hung around with some of those she's a little brighter than them but she she knew some of those some of those kids who were you know kind of had the ducktail and you know had the the, the luckies in the yeah. in the t shirt sleeve. Yeah. It was a, they were all I don't want to say cliches. They were kind of cosplaying because what oh. they wanted to be was like they wanted to be the guys in the kids in uh, Rebel Without a Cause. They wanted right. to be those tough uh, those tough but deep teens. Yeah. Or uh-huh. you know and and. Uh, like like today, as as it is today, they liked kind of grossing each other out and kind of misbehaving as a way of getting attention. And um, I, they'll they'll always be with us. <laughs> yes, yeah. It seemed sort of like a generation that was sort of like, yeah, I wasn't in World War II, but I'm tough. That's right. <laughs> yeah, oh, like yeah. I can still do it uh, yeah. with my switchblade comb. Um, now you talked about the credibility gap and you worked with Harry Shearer and David in that. And I, I saw somewhere that you guys, um, had a couple of interesting experiences on stage with that. Um, one was that you opened for John Denver, which seems insane. Wow. But that was a good house. That was a really good audience. We opened for commando, commando Cody. Now, you don't know this, now you don't know this name at all. No, I know I do. I saw a little bit of it on a. Uh, uh, you can find all these old uh, midnight specials yeah. on uh, on YouTube, and some of the people, some of the bands are shockingly good, and they were really fun. They were really kind of an up tempo band, uh, and they they had a lot of just like nine people on stage and just made a racket, and they were really fun. Um, the only real disaster I think was when we opened for Richie Havens. So it's like the Albert Brooks event. Albert had a whole piece about opening for Richie Havens. Right. Virtually the same experience, except that Albert had a record deal. Uh-huh. <laughs> he didn't even tell anyone about it. <laughs> now, so, is, that the, is that the one where the, the audience, for some strange reason, was given oranges? Oranges, yes. <laughs> we, we wore a lot of those oranges on our way up. I can't imagine being pelted yeah. by fruit, literally. Pretty good, yeah. Um, so then you, I was learning cause I, you know, you, you watch Laverne and Shirley and there you two explode in through the door with hello and being hilarious. Oh, and you think like, oh, well, these guys 
must have been seasoned television performers or this is, you know, this is what they do. But I uh, also heard that you guys were actually just brought on to be writers on the show. And then maybe occasionally you would get on the show and then that turned out much differently. Well, that was the idea. And it was, it was really Penny Marshall's idea. She was a fan of the credibility gap. She and Rob, when they were married and, um, uh, when Penny sold, well, you know, Penny and Gary, her brother, when they sold that show, they had done a, a, a demo, a, um, presentation film with only one other character. They had clips from the happy days they, they had appeared in and they added, uh, uh, Eddie Mecca as, as Carmine. And, and so that was pretty much it for the presentation film. So they needed more characters and Penny had the bright idea. Let's hire these guys as writers and we weren't in the guild so we were kind of apprentice writers really right and um maybe sneak them in you know uh, a couple of shows down the line once we get our, our sea legs the first script was delivered and it really needed a little something so they said try writing you got yourselves in and we started writing and we just wrote ourselves in and they said well let's make them a function of this of the plot and so they, you know, they started, they started doing that. And then from then on, we, we really, we were put in charge of our own stuff largely. That's great. Um, we actually would see occasionally on the paper, it would actually say, Lenny and Squiggy enter and do something. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we did. That's great. We got something to do. Yeah. I mean, were you glad to not be in the writer's room exclusively? Because I know that's oh. something that we talked about a lot. Is that like, oh, it's so much better to act than it is to write, you know? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um <laughs> yeah, yeah, it we is. only did we only really wrote we were only writers for I would say the first season. Oh wow. and then after that it was like, well, now we're kind of in the show. And we don't want to spend all of our time at Paramount as much as we love Paramount. Yeah. We, we, we had families and, and, you know, I had a little kid at home and, you know, we wanted to kind of get our lives started too. So it was fine with, fine with us. And uh, we still, they still let us write our own stuff. They counted on us. You know, we wrote yeah. uh, the first two, se- uh, first two seasons, we wrote one show each, very much Lenny and Squiggy centered. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, um, Lowell Gans was always really good at writing us. There's a writer named Dana Olson, who really kind of later in the show, uh, he really kind of had a bead on it. And there were a lot, you know, a lot of a lot of writers really kind of got it. Others kind of tried to write kind of rewritten Polish jokes, you know, it's, it's yeah. not- <laughs> We're not, we may be the dumbest guys on the block, but that's not what's interesting. What's right. interesting is that they live in their own world and occasionally share it with us. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, it, uh, when they, they, they did a lot of good writing on the show and uh, some of it we, we worked on and we were welcome to work on it and it worked yeah. out. Well, and I that show was sort of, you know, certain shows, the tapings go to six, seven hours as they do alt after all was that show more like a stage production and then they just would let you move on or did they were they like trying stuff no uh it was very rare that we would shoot anything a second time with the audience there we would do occasional pickups if something went wrong but largely we would any little pieces that needed for cutaways and everything we'd wait until everyone went home we never shot the dress rehearsal first of all it's all on film 
Yeah. Uh, we never shot the dress rehearsal. We shot the performance and we shot it once. Wow. And the audience was, we, we counted on them being a real audience. We, you know, uh, the last time I did a pilot, an actual pilot was about 20 years ago, I guess. <laughs> By that, I mean five. <laughs> no, it was, it was more like, it was almost 20 years ago. And I was stunned when we got onto the floor and we'd worked on it a little bit, we rehearsed it and stuff. It was a good cast. And we come out there, we shoot the first scene. And then they say, all right, we're, we're going to go again. And there's an audience there and everything. And I'm thinking, really? And do the whole thing again? Okay, okay. <laughs> got it nine times. Yeah. Oh, got it okay. nine times in front of an audience. We were still shooting at two in the morning. And we were paying the extras to stay and yep. and laugh at us. That's it's unbelievable. And yeah, yeah. And it's no, and of course it wasn't good. You know. Well, do you right. think what what do you attribute that to? Because I wonder if maybe back when you were doing Laverne and Shirley, most of the performers had maybe a, a decent amount of theater experience because that was the time and maybe they were just more used to like hey we're doing this live show for mm -hmm. an audience so it's a show that we're going to go from the beginning to the end well, and and film. just not make the audience because that that is the thing that kills me now and and having goldie and i both run shows and it, you're right you do four or five takes of a scene and and you have an artificial audience warm-up guy trying mm -hmm. to pep them yeah. up and yeah it is that do you and think that there's to do this for some reason like that I no know. one but no one tells you why well it's probably right. film versus digital you know but when you have yeah, film you can't yeah, afford to do too. all the takes well i worked with uh, bob spears who directed all the uh, faulty towers and yes. i said well you i i've noticed when you go from one scene to another uh when you go from the the, the dining room uh, into the lobby and stuff it's it's a pretty smooth transition and the energy uh, seems to be very much the same. And he says, well, that's because we didn't stop. Yeah. We didn't stop. We pulled back and we didn't even say reset. We just, the audience just held and we all went, we played the scene. And then this camera that was over here out, had moved out of the dining room. He was ready to catch the entrance into the lobby. So we so didn't stop. And he said there were times when he wished that they had there was a couple of beats in um, in uh, the uh, don't don't talk about the war the Germans oh great the Germans <laughs> yeah one of the funniest things in history ever uh, there is a thing when he gets clonked on the head with a frying pan <laughs> which is nowhere near hard enough to for our plot right. and Cleese talked about it too he says yeah I assumed we were going to take that again <laughs> we, you know do an insert do a, just a wild shot of that never did. And it was just, it's, we got to get this on the air, you know. That it was, and it became one of the, you know, the funniest episodes of a of a sitcom ever. I mean, that, I put that, that with, uh, with the Bilko uh, uh, court martial of Harry Speak Up as the greatest. You know, I don't know that one. You know, you know Bilko. I know the show. I I just never watched it's one it. One that's called the Court Martial. Okay, and it's brilliant. I'm not going to tell you why. And I'm going to watch it on yeah, YouTube. It, it's astonishing. I would put the Seinfeld contest maybe. In yeah, there. that was that was a good one too. And several episodes of maybe the the Buffalo Bill episode with all the Jerry Lewises. There are all these Jerry Lewis impersonators running around the building, including Jim Carrey and some others. Wow, it, that should be that one. That's brilliant. Yeah. All right, I've got I've got some research to do <laughs> now after this. Yeah. So to get back to Laverne and Shirley for a minute, so you burst out onto the stage in episode one of what is 
the number one show that week. So that means at that time that's being watched by like 30 million people, people. you know, yeah. at, at that time. Yeah. And then that show has success for eight years. Mm -hmm. um, did you feel like, were you concerned that you were going to be, you know, typecast as like, okay, I'm going to have to be like kind of a broad guy now. And did you consciously make your next choice something that was like a little more specific? Well, uh, the choice I made for the first four, four or five seasons, the choice I made was to do nothing in the, <laughs> in the hiatus. Yeah. Would, I would hang out with my, kid and my dogs and and we would you know i, I dream nothing it was like hey i'm making pretty good money i don't really have to work these three months uh and david and i have some we would occasionally do stuff we would we would write stuff together we still did the occasional credibility gap piece for some other project um uh and um so i i think i avoided it that way because i knew that would be a thing and every boy every single hiatus i was offered a, a, a love boat <laughs> ah the dream play, we love the love boat to play the yeah. dumbest guy on the boat you know or to <laughs> it was always the same thing and it's like yeah i think maybe if i don't if i don't do these it'll be better for me in the long run. <laughs> so the next big part i had the, my first uh, the first feature i was ever in well the first feature i had a, a real part in was used cars and it was yes, in myself sure. uh and we weren't two dumb guys we were two really bright guys who happened to be insane but we're very <laughs> a lot. but the next high profile things that i did after or in the last years of laverne and shirley were uh, was a movie called young doctors in love so funny gary marshall's first feature yeah and uh it was i was playing this kind of richard chamberlain i was played straight man to the whole picture everyone right. else in the film was was insane and i was yeah. just kind of the the so I was kind of a smoothie in that. And then the next thing I did was a spinal tap, which was very, very different. So if I had croaked after those movies, <laughs> nobody could say he only had one trick. You right. know? Yes. So it was kind of healthy and it it uh, it freed me. And I, I really have always, I always loved actors who were never exactly the same any two times, Alec Guinness. And even yeah. Frederick March, who, was, who could do really, he was a great comic actor. And, but he also did all these other things and he never quite, he really had a whole different take every time. Yeah. Paul Muni, well, those guys. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. you've certainly uh, accomplished that goal. Um, and now something I didn't know about you was that you were offered uh, uh, to be on the cast of the 1984 Saturday Night Live, the one with yeah, Christopher yeah. Guest and Harry Shearer and Billy Crystal and Martin Short. And yeah. that was when I first plugged in to, to comedy. I, so I was 11. And then finally, I was allowed not to stay up and watch, but to Betamax record mm -hmm. the Saturday Night Lives. Oh, and I would watch them on Sunday morning. And so I remember that season, you were actually a host on the show. But why did, can you explain a little bit why you passed up uh, that opportunity? Well, um, I had just bought a house. Uh, my then wife was pregnant. Uh, it just, it wasn't really in the cards. I, I, I yeah. It was not a good time for me to be spending most of my time on, a, on a, another coast. And right. uh, my wife, Susan, was not into living in New York. It just wasn't, that wasn't going to happen. Right. So it just, it, it didn't happen. Um, I, you know, I had second thought. I, I made my mind up and I said, no. 
And I did right. have the occasional second thought about it, especially when uh, one of the guy, one of the parents at my kid's school said, yeah, yeah, we're moving to we're moving to New York. I said, really, you're all moving to New York? Yeah, why? Well, I'm I'm doing Ryan's Hope. Shit, people are moving for Ryan's Hope. <laughs> now, that's the way it is. You know, it's just, and I'm not Great. sorry. I, I'm not sorry. I didn't yeah. that. I didn't do the show. It just it worked out better for me. Yeah, I wound up doing um, a, a movie called uh, Daryl, which was yeah. a really nice kit I, movie. It was. A, I, I love that movie, and I and I was going to get to that as part of the questions down here that I've labeled your robot era. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, but, yeah, but but I I loved I loved Daryl. I thought the kid in that was great. I yeah. thought you were great, and it was just had a really nice message. It was very sweet. It was really fun. It was it was uh, my first kind of extended uh, location. It was in yeah. Orlando, Florida, and I made a lot of friends, and I'm still friendly with there. Mary Beth Hurt and and uh, this uh, wonderful woman named Donna Bloom, who is a producer, and she started as a PA on that movie, oh and so we wow. we kind of became pals, and cool. and uh, you know a lot of a lot of people. God bless her, Colleen, Colleen, yeah. who is just you know and well, yep. My next movie was also with Colleen Camp, which was Clue, which turned out to be great. one of those that flops movie. that kept becoming more successful. Yeah, I love that movie. Absolutely. My yeah. kids who are uh, 12 and 7 yeah. love Clue. Like, we've watched yeah. it four or five times with them. It just, it's still funny. Yeah. It's, it's so like good. a funny chaos of it. Just yeah. You know. yeah. And it's Madeline Kahn and Eileen Brennan and Tim. Bless his heart, man. Tim Curry doing a part the size of Iago's scooting <laughs> around this building. And it was, and you know, me and Mull are being no help at all. We're just another <laughs> up, you know, I, I do remember at that time, because I saw in the theater that the, the big thing they were trying to sell you on was like, you can choose the ending or that there were somehow more endings. And I, even at the time I remember saying like, I just want, I just want them to, like I don't want to do this. Yeah, yeah. Don't were you? Did you think that was at the time revolutionary and where things were going, or was it something you felt was annoying that they were having I you do? I thought it was. I thought it was a mistake. I thought it was one of those marketing things that people went screw that. I mean, give me, sell me a movie or don't. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Trick yes. me into buying another ticket just to keep <laughs> an ending. And the way that they've edited now, you know, for for TV or for you know for home video. Is it what they should have done to begin with? It's like, you don't like that ending here? Let's try another one. There's two. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a fourth ending that we only, we shot one shot for, one stunt shot, which was, I don't remember what the plot did, but it ended with the the whole cast being chased through a a glass door by a bunch of Dobermans. (laughs) And do you, do you still keep in touch with those Dobermans? (laughs) (laughs) um but i want since we skipped over a a pretty key moment uh in your career which is of course uh spinal tap did you know as you were doing it i mean clearly you guys were making each other laugh and you you thought what you were doing was was funny because it's hysterical but did you have any sense that that was gonna be what it became no no because we spent the whole time I mean, once we once we shot the film, we knew that it was going to be really, really funny because yeah. we had like whatever it was, 100 hours and we cut it down to 
85 minutes. It's a short movie. Yeah. yeah. And it's the same length as Bride of Frankenstein, I'm proud to say. <laughs> so, but we knew that it was going to be a hard sell because it wasn't like any other comedies. Yeah. Had this kind of documentary feel to it. Um, there were a, there were some jokes that were kind of standard jokes, joke shaped, but there were other things that just kind of came out of nowhere. Oh. And, uh, you know, it was situational and it was absurd without really going outside reality. <laughs> I know it was so in reality. <laughs> yeah. 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 There, there's oh, a yeah. particular yeah. lyric that's one of my favorite <laughs> pieces of writing. And maybe there's a story there. Maybe there isn't. But I just have to ask, uh, the looser the waistband, the deeper the quicksand, or so I have read. <laughs> that, that, like the, or so I have read is to me yeah. so friggin' funny. Like, is that, is there any story of the genesis of that lyric? That, that character, is there a story there? Or is that just like a, a little bit of lyric magic? Well, we knew that uh, the Queen had had the, this Fat Bottom Girl song, and yeah. I thought this is a good focus, and we started working on it. And the idea of playing of all of us playing bass is struck as funny. And when yeah. we were the lyrics, Rob Rob came up with the first line, the, which was something they used to say in his high school. Yeah, know, bigger the cushion, the sweeter the pushing. And it's, okay, great. And so we just wrote the next line. Uh, <laughs> I think waistband quicksand was mine, but I think so. I have read. I think it just opened to the room. I don't remember all of the things. Yeah. It was just, it just seemed funny to us. It <laughs> is funny. And, and that, yeah, go ahead, Goldie. I just can't stop laughing when I think about yeah. it. I, I honestly, every time I think about it, I just start laughing. <laughs> well, it, it One my wife likes is, uh, you're too young and I'm too well hung. She thinks yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that all cancelable offenses today. Oh yeah, um, oh, yeah. yeah it, it took me it, and I I consider myself a fairly savvy comedy viewer. It took me twenty years to get the Isle of Lucy joke, which then once I once it clicked in, I was like, that that is genius. How did I not see that literally sitting in front of me this whole time? That was that was Chris's joke. Oh, yeah. just uh, talking about a jazz and blues festival. And, you know, they have that festival there on the Isle of Wight yes. in England. And so they said it's on the, it's on the Isle of Lucy. And I was like, oh, I love Lucy. It was so great. Um, now, tell me something, because I bought, like many did, uh, the DVD of uh, This Is Spinal Tap. And I bought a, a, a deluxe edition where you guys were doing the commentary as the band yeah. like 20 years later. <laughs> yes. And it was so, I describe it to people like, it's like as funny as the movie was on top of the movie. It's like you're getting a whole different movie, which is equally as funny because you guys have taken the angle when you're watching it of like, we were manipulated, we were taken <laughs> advantage of, which yeah. I thought was so funny. And so- do you have any memories about recording that commentary together? Uh, you know, I, I don't have any specific memories, but it was it was kind of a repeat of the event in a way because we were trying to make each other laugh. Yeah, yes. so, and we can we can do that. So we had to keep stopping, but uh, <laughs> it, it was fun to do it in character. For the Criterion Laserdisc, there's another commentary we did out of character, oh. Oh. which was also pretty funny. But we're also, you know, we let you in on facts that no one would know or care about, 
the fact that the man who plays the janitor in the basement of the Cleveland, yes. uh, yeah, who is amazing. I mean, he's just completely perfect. Oh, he's awesome. The actor's name is Wonderful Smith. Now, <laughs> if you ask someone named Wonderful Smith, you're, you're already ahead of the game. And it's even better when you realize that the first person we cast passed, who passed away between the time we cast him and the time we shot it, and we had to bring in Wonderful Smith, his name was Spodiote. No. Okay. So Spodiote passed away and we got Wonderful Smith. It's almost poetry. It, it is. Literally. Yeah. So I have read. No. Um, <laughs> but that, so, God, there, there are so it's many funny. things to dive in on there. And when you did the commentary in character for that DVD, one of the jokes that you kept repeating that, I, I mean, it was spit take funny, was that somebody would appear on screen and one of you would somberly say, oh, he's dead. He's dead. And then, and like every successive person who would come on, someone else would say like, he, you know, he's dead. And then there was a picture of like a building and somebody said that building is dead. And I was just like, this is that. unbelievably great. And I'm wondering, do you, do you know where that's available now? I cannot find that with the commentary anymore. It's like, I sound like my dad who always loses <laughs> yeah. things and looks for things, but like, I am desperate to get that back because. Oh no, I, I, I yeah. can't help you. I know. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm sure that I, I have it. Uh, yeah. So maybe I'll give you my address. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't have one of them. It'll, it'll be something you might have to return. <laughs> I do have some, I have some uh, versions that I can't play because they're, you know, they were foreign releases and they don't play on my machine. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, so I, I had the cassette of the, just the band and I had it in my car in high yeah. school and it, it was really as, as good and as loved in a serious sense, is like a lot of the other stuff I was listening to at the time, whether it was, I don't know, like Guns N' Roses or it, yeah. like I like the music was actually tight and good. And so how in putting together the band, I mean, did you must have put in the work of a real band, I'm guessing. Or yeah. did you have outside help like musicians oh. saying do this or that? Or did you all just kind of like work together? We and had... was that was there any? real rivalry in the fake band of like what no no uh in fact there's an odd hybrid of circumstance the uh we did a 20 minute um kind of a presentation of the film uh and the original lineup was as you see but also but in instead of viv savage the keyboard player in reality the <laughs> calf um there was a guy named john sinclair who was amazing he was a synth guy yeah. he was a, just a real rock and roll guy he could play the shit out of anything with the keyboard but he was also he knew how to you know pylon sounds and everything so he went when because it was a long time between the presentation film and the actual shooting it was about two years um because we kept signing and then the, the studio would go under you know <laughs> we, we were with the first first one was uh <laughs> Sir Lou Grade's company, Marble Arch. And then they, they released Legend of the Lone Ranger and Raise the Titanic on consecutive weekends. <laughs> Absolutely just flatlined the, the, that company. And then it was picked up by somebody else. It was picked up by UA. They got absorbed by MGM and they said, pass. 
So we kind of had all this time and we just kept working on it, kept writing songs and kept thinking about things. So by the time we uh, we went to do the film, John Sinclair couldn't join us for the shooting because he had accepted a job with Ozzy. Oh, so he oh, wow. legit went on the road. He played with Uriah Heep oh, and he played with Ozzy. So he had these real things, but he worked on all the music with us before he went out on the road. So all the most of the stuff you hear there is John Sinclair playing. Wow. And he was just good. He, he could have been a hit maker, you know. No, it's so as good as like de- those Def Leppard albums, which I love. Yeah, like yeah, the music. Yeah, and then yeah. it's also funny. Like, but the music is mm-hmm. that good. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No. And you guys, um, w- you talked earlier about, you know, Queen releases Fat Bottom Girls. And so you go into big bottoms mm-hmm. it, with stuff like Stonehenge. Was that like a Led Zeppelin thing where, cause they were always kind of mystical in an annoying way. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to do something that was, that had that feel of, of, you know, hush now rock and roll is over for a few minutes. Curious <laughs> <laughs> history here. And uh, yeah. Chris and I wrote this song in one afternoon. We just kind of, knocked it out and he said just kind of the first thing that we ever wrote as david and nigel was called the princess and the unicorn (laughs) and it was uh it was for a pilot that never really happened it was a pilot like a magazine comedy magazine pilot which wound up never never really materialized but uh it was the two of us running into each other it's oh it's like old times and we playing these old songs and um so I, I actually cut it to his first kind of cutting I've ever done. Chris had to go off and do the long riders. So I, me, I, I was sitting there saying, what the hell do I do? And Penny Spirit, Penelope Spiris was shooting some, was cutting something, one of the decline and fall films next door. So she came over and goes, you know, hi, yeah, you guys are funny. Uh, and so she helped me cut the thing together. And that was my first wow. lesson in in actually doing that. It was really fun. Oh, that's cool. cool. Yeah. And and so so you and and Chris write Stonehenge on one afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and did you have the idea immediately, or was it later to have the miniature oh. Stonehenge monument? No, it was. There was a band, and I'm I don't want to say who it was because I I may have it wrong. There was a group that had a Stonehenge number, and they had. Uh, an enormous thing and oh. i you know we just thought what if they got the size wrong and you know it broke 12 <laughs> inches instead of 12 feet and it became and then we we wrote the song uh, uh, around that joke like that. that is literally how i remember the I difference you- between the foot and the inches marker that was because of that movie like i think i would be screwing it up all the time had i not seen that i think yeah. the band was black no. sabbath the the original band it was Sabbath. Sabbath. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. God. Yeah. Well, that <laughs> we we crazy. talked earlier about the you know the Germans' faulty towers being one of the greatest. I I think the 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 wrong size Stonehenge is is one of the greatest jokes in in comedy history. Like it, it's something that nobody can ever forget. And to have Angelica Houston coming in for just two lines <laughs> to be yeah. that person was because she, she's so such a great actress that yeah. it's like everything just felt so real. And then it's, well, you know, it's not as not her casting jo- not his... choice. The casting choice that I always go with was Howard Hessman. Yes. Howard's part did not even exist 24 hours before we shot it. Wow. That's that was supposed to be us 
in a conversation with Duke fame, with this rock yeah. star. But when he came in for a fitting that at one afternoon, we realized the guy couldn't talk. The guy was, <laughs> it's not just he wasn't going to be brilliant and, and give us a lot of gold. He really didn't know kind of, uh, what do you mean? He was a real guy. He was a real you know, player. He looked right. amazing. Yeah. Exactly right. And Rob said, why don't we give him a manager? I'll call Howard Hessman. Oh. Literally how it happened. And of course he came in with both of his six guns fully loaded and <laughs> he was brilliant. He was amazing. Yeah. That day, yeah. We also had Paul, uh, Paul Benedict as the hotel clerk oh, who wow. killed us, killed us. <laughs> there was one line that we, we couldn't keep in because we went immediately. It was me and Hendra st standing at the, then he's arguing, you know, as you twisted fruit, it's that whole thing. You know, I yeah, yeah, yeah. made me, sir. And he put, he put at one point, he put the cricket bat up on the desk. And Benedict, just looking for trouble, said, but you can't take that up to the room. <laughs> and said, why not? And Paul said, well, it's enormous. <laughs> it made no sense. I don't know why, but it just, we just literally <laughs> fell apart. That's so great. Oh, God, he was that, That's awesome. And yeah, so that's now to talk a little bit about, because, you know, Rob Reiner directed that one. It sounds like he was very hands-on in the front lines with you guys and figuring out like what's going to be funny, what's going to work. And then I, it, I feel like people almost forget that Rob Reiner directed that and they kind of give it to Christopher Guest because mm -hmm. he's just, you know, he's carved out that niche for himself. And I love hearing that story about you guys kind of all breaking up together because I I feel like when I, when I, talk about Christopher Guest or hear about Christopher Guest, he seems almost like a little scary and unapproachable to me. But were were you guys just constantly cracking each other up? Like, he, he, you got no sense of like, oh, this guy's, I better be on my best behavior around this guy. Oh, I had known Chris for, you know, many, I, we, we met in 1967. Yeah. And by you together. So right. you know, I knew him from then. Uh, he knew the other guys, knew Harry as of 71 or two. Uh, during the credibility gap days, he was mostly in New York. Chris was mostly in New York, but he came out to work on Lily's show and stuff. And, and so I introduced him around and then they did the TV show, which was a Rob Reiner special pilot for a, a series. And that's when Spinal Tap first appeared. So uh, Chris was a writer on the show. Tommy Leopold was a writer. Harry was one of the writer producers on the show. And um, and Marty Mull wrote some music for it and everything. It was a really kind of a fun project. Awesome. Um, but that's when that's when Spinal Tap really started. Was that video with Rob as Wolfman Jack cool. and uh, and the band at that time? It was me, Chris, and Harry Loudon Wainwright on the keyboards. Incredible. And drummer was Russ Kunkel, who played drums for everybody still is playing drums for everybody what? oh that's so cool amazing guy yeah so you're like a legit band now so obviously you went on to work with chris several times after that and one of those times is a movie that i just loved growing up and i feel like it's sort of overlooked in terms of films about hollywood so mm. christopher uh directed and wrote and then i heard you did a, a rewrite on this movie called the big picture. Right. Um, 
and that was uh, starring Kevin Bacon and you, uh, among others. And to me, for the age I was watching that, it felt like a really good entree into like, this is kind of what Hollywood might be like. Like, it might suck. Like, I kind of want to go out there, but it might just drain your soul, you know, in, in some way. So what what do you remember about putting that together? Um, and, and we talked earlier about you don't like writing really alone. It's much more fun when you're in a group. Well, did you do your rewrite alone or were you writing it with those guys again? No. Um, Chris wrote it with a guy named Michael Varhol, who was one of the, uh, also a producer of the film. And uh, they wrote the script. It was, uh, you know, it was Chris's idea. He wanted to write about a guy who kind of lets himself get sucked into this thing. A guy who really wants to make odd, quirky little movies and Hollywood wants to make something else out of him. And um, so they finished the script. They got uh, kind of a half a go ahead from Columbia Pictures. And uh, so they needed to do a rewrite. And so they brought me in. So we worked on it for a few months. Then I went off to do uh, a film in in Toronto. And, uh, you know, kind of it, it was what it was. Then we started casting and I was the designated actor. I read with everybody. I read with everybody on the West Coast because uh, he did yeah. some casting in New York, too. And uh, so while we were in the process, one of the characters that I read was this this character named Emmett, who was in the film. And so finally, Chris goes, yeah, let's not look for any more Emmets. You can do that. Just grow a beard. And you'll be good. Yeah. So, OK, I got a job. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but it was uh, any young actors hearing this. If you can possibly finagle the chance to sit in and read with actors in casting, in any casting situation, if you can spend a day doing that, it will change your life. Wow. Because you will see that there are people who are going to come in and be fucking brilliant, but not get the part because they're just not the right thing. So you don't, it, it's like <laughs> there's no more wonderful thing you can say to yourself than. I don't necessarily suck, yes. <laughs> but I, you know, I, cause you, I saw people come in and be amazing. Jim Carrey came in for that role for the Kevin Bacon role. He was wrong in a million ways. He made us shit ourselves laughing <laughs> because there's a scene in the film that we wound up never using, but there was a scene when he goes, Jerry Lewis all over a guy. Oh, what this uh, Dan, Dan Schneider, Plays the guy who thinks he's Orson Welles, essentially. Yep. <laughs> he comes into this restaurant where Kevin is working as a busboy. And Kevin goes Jerry Lewis on him and coats him in spaghetti. And you know, just does this big, oh, Samuel. <laughs> so Jim basically kind of just, he took my boot off. He was just, he was just <laughs> clobbered me. And I was hysterical. And, and it was really, really funny. But it wasn't right. It yeah. wasn't God. Well, that's that's an interesting topic to talk about, because I would have assumed, you know, being a, not the expert on the inside like like you were, that the studio would have been making you take Kevin Bacon, who I thought was very good in the movie and was kind of perfect for it. Like because Kevin Bacon was a bankable star. He was just in Footloose and he's, you know, mm -hmm. he's doing all this and box office and all that. But was it really a case where he came in and auditioned and he was just like, that's the guy? It was he was certainly bankable we one would suppose but he was also a guy who could have chosen anything and the fact that he chose this meant that he really liked it yes that he liked the notion of doing a film about hollywood that that 
that takes this angle. Right. And so we knew that, you know, he, he we, we knew that he wanted to do it. I don't remember anyone else being suggested. I know that it was the fine, the final draw. It was between uh, Kevin Bacon and Kevin Anderson. We just had a Kevin thing at the time. <laughs> Kevin Anderson's Kevin. an amazing actor. And he oh. just, and he was really, really good. He just wasn't quite the guy. Right. So, uh, yeah. Marty Short, there's nobody else was ever, ever considered. It was just, that's the guy, you know. Unbelievable. J.T. Walsh, for that part, we read a lot of people. And I didn't read with J.T. That was done on the East Coast. And when he when he left the room, he, he came in, he read. When he left the room, the guy who was, I forget who it was, but the actor who was reading with him, just mimed a guy hitting a home run over the wall. <laughs> yep. yep. Don't let him get to the parking lot. Let's give him. He was so great. Yeah. He was a hell of an actor. Oh, I mean, okay. he, whatever he, he gave gravitas to, to every role and he was scary as that, that uh, studio executive. He's, oh yeah. Well, he was, when he, when he played a scary guy, he was scary. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of specialized in that. Yeah. Absolutely. So now, as promised earlier, a little bit about the robot era. We <laughs> talked about Daryl, which was yeah. a lovely, as you said, a movie kind of for kids. And I, I, I bought it hook, line and sinker. So you're also in Short Circuit, too. And now you're the lead of this movie. You're, you're this star. You're, you know, Steve Gutenberg has, you know, n- is no longer involved. And you're the lead of this movie. Well, um, and, Fisher was actually and, uh, Fisher is was very funny in a role that obviously he could never play today. No, they would they wouldn't let him. Uh, now I was watching an interview you did with Captain Pollock, and uh, you were talking about Short Circuit Two, and you had a very funny line. Like I don't know if you remember it when when somebody comes and asks you about your experience on Short Circuit Two, you had one immediate sort of weary line about it. Do you remember that? Uh-uh. It was that fucking robot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and there was a, fun, a funny reason why. Because the robot, right, which I had, would never have even thought of, the robot was so noisy during your takes yeah. that you had to come in and re-record all your lines. I looped every line that I had with the robot. That's all loops, every oh. single line. Wow. And it became it became really tiresome. Uh, wow. The people who ran the robot were amazing. They were really lovely puppeteers. You know, they're yeah. like some of my favorite people are puppeteers. Yeah. My, my daughter is now a, a master, a mistress puppeteer. Oh, wow. Nice. Um, yeah. I mean, it's one of her sidelines. Uh, <laughs> but the thing that may have prompted that was one very cold day that I was riding on the robot all through the streets of Toronto. <laughs> and... Just to be standing on this, the back of this fucking thing <laughs> and have to, to watch the director who shall not be named. Um, I can't think of it, but <laughs> I can, but now nah. and it was him, him and the rest of the crew just kind of discussing it. And they're all wearing these nice big coats and everything. And I'm wearing this silk shirt with this light leather jacket. And so finally I'm standing and it's like literally 10 minutes waiting for them to start the shot. And I bellowed, can we just take this fucking shot? (laughs) (laughs) And they were, you know, 
I, I don't do that. I don't flip out on the set. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe twice in my whole life. And, and, uh, but anyway, it was, it, it was, it was stressful that way. Well, I can Sounds say cold. as somebody who was the perfect right age for the first movie, uh, to seem wonderful to me, it was, you know, obviously it took the ET formula and kind of like, sure. you know, jumbled that around. I also found the second movie like equally delightful. You oh, know, it's, it's I was, pretty good. It really yeah. is. It's a fun movie. I was into it all. I saw it recently, some a lot of it recently, and I thought, well, okay, this doesn't totally suck. Yeah, you're like, oh boy, I look so young. That was five years ago. Um, so I want to talk for a minute about uh, the Brady Bunch movie, where yeah. you play the evil neighbor, Mr. Dittmeyer. Mm-hmm. And the, the, now did you, it, it seems like you probably would have missed the Brady Bunch growing up. Like, I mean, not that you weren't aware of it, but it wasn't for you when it no, came I out. Was, I was 22 when the Brady Bunch started. Yeah, so and you I missed had that. Arrived in L.A. and and I was I you know I had bigger fish to fry, and it didn't look like the kind of TV that I that I would watch on a regular basis. Right, mm-hmm. but they I, nailed that. They nailed that movie. Yeah, it was like funny. they they really were able to find the right tone for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. and now I remember the the theater exploding when you told a dog not to piss on your face. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you remember that day with that little dog? I do, I do. Um, yeah, I had gotten electrocuted. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And do you notice the guy, who the, the electrician? He's got one line. He used to have a bigger scene. It was David Proval, who oh. was Sopranos. He was... Yeah, the scary uh, guy. He was Richie, Richie April. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Wow. That's right. Yeah. And I was like, I saw them when I saw the film, I said, man, they cut his scene and we had a really funny scene together. They cut it. They cut a lot of, a lot of stuff that I thought was, was okay. And, yeah. but that's not my, not my job, you know? Right. No, no, no. I thought you, they got it right for the most part. Yeah. That was really funny. Yeah, they did. Clearly, if you can make a sequel off a movie, you've done something right the first time. <laughs> so now we talked about uh, passing on SNL at a certain time, and then you come to SNL as a cast member um, what was that experience like for you? Because it feels like, you know, we talked about 84 and then, you know, your buddies were there and then mm-hmm. you come into the mid nineties and go there. And did you feel a little more isolated when you were there? I mean, it wasn't your, your buds weren't there at yeah. that time. Well, uh, some of the guys were kind of my new friends anyway, cause I had done, uh, cone heads right. and I had done, uh, airheads. Yeah. So, one and two of my my head trilogy. <laughs> yeah, robots. Never, we never finished shitheads, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, that would have been really fun. But uh, because of those two, you know, I I became friends with uh, Adam and Chris Farley, and uh, to to a lesser extent, I mean, a bunch of people in Coneheads who were also on the show. Yeah, and uh, I kind of the rap party of Coneheads. I met a lot of people who were on the show that weren't in the film. I met Spade and and Mike Myers and and everybody. And it just kind of looked like a merry bunch. And so Lauren said, well, to to himself, not to me, (laughs) we're going to lose lose Phil Hartman. He's leaving the show after eight seasons. So we're going to need somebody. We need a grown-up. We need somebody to play David Spade's dad. We need someone someone to play uh, Clinton, which was like following... You know, following the Beatles doing a day in the life with my version. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's because he was so brilliant at it, so good at it, which I didn't even know about at the time. But the last the last six shows of that season 
Phil was also on and he was very helpful to me. You know, he was very, he kind of knew what was going on. He says, what you got to do, you got to write for yourself. Came up with somebody, write for yourself. So I, you know, I wrote some stuff with Al Franken. I wrote some stuff with, uh, with Dave Mandel. We wrote some funny stuff. Sure. Uh, I wrote some solos of some, you know, stuff on my own that worked out for the company. So it was actually, uh, it was a pretty good experience, all things considered. But I was, I, I was, I was, you know, a little older than most of the, most of the guys. And I, you know, I, I hung out with Jay Moore and, and uh, some others, you know, we, you know, I did have a good time, but I was also not the guy who liked to party. I didn't drink. Right. So I wasn't the guy, I wasn't the, you know, Mr. Two o'clock in the morning at, uh, you know, at Sardi's or whatever. Right. And it wasn't my thing. Yeah. And certainly felt like an old man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's it for me, guys. Now you kids have fun. Just not too long. Well, being uh, older, did you did you find that like because that's a notoriously competitive place? You know, we've yeah. we've all I was we've all had a little experience there. But did you find that you were able to distance yourself from the competitiveness of it and go, oh, I'm fine just being in this or that, or do you instantly yeah. get sucked in? Because I know I would be like, I'm older, I'm okay. But then when I was there, I'd be like, fuck this, I want to <laughs> do it all. No. No, uh, it, it's that that wasn't it wasn't a big issue for me really. It's yeah. incredible. When interesting guest people would come on, I'd have something to do. You know, I I would say, oh, okay. You know what Helen Hunt would be good as an actress. <laughs> and, uh, I sketch, which was pretty good. It was like the first lengthy sketch, the first you know real meaty sketch that I wrote. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of depended on the guest wow. people. It sounds uh, ideal. But I, the thing that was happening then, Coneheads was not a hit, uh, as it turned out, but Wayne's World was. So everybody, all the writers were looking for the next Wayne's World. They were looking for the next franchise. And so, you know, there were things that got on that were not particularly good, but you saw where they were going with it. Yep. Uh, the, 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 one who, the guy who had the worst problem, I think, uh, and he's one of the one of the funniest men who ever lived is Chris Elliott. And yes. he, he and uh, Norm Hiscock would write together a lot. And it was just they were in a bubble that he didn't. He appeared in sketches when they needed him. But it was never as a, as a kind of a lead guy in the sketch. And he would write these weird kind of things. <laughs> and they got on occasionally. And, and they were often the funniest thing on that episode. Yeah. So, you know, he was, uh, there were a lot of different shades to that one. But the main thing I remember was that everyone was kind of looking for the next gig. And as it turned out, they they did pretty much change the guard at the end of that season. They, you know, they brought in some really, really good people. And, you know, uh, so anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talk about whatever guest host was coming would kind of spark something in you to, to, yeah. to get going. So, uh, I, I, as I recall that season, because I, w Goldie and I were around that year, you had a string of like, it was like this week, Dion Sanders next week, like George Foreman. And it's like, what the hell am I going to do with these people? What am I going to do? Well, I'll tell you what I did. I sat there and let someone else pitch. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't have anything. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Those were George Foreman was the, was the strangest. Because it was the Christmas show, and he didn't want to do any anything about Christmas. What? <laughs> it's like, okay, you're Santa, you're Santa yeah. Claus. George. I know. There was, you know, there was why? no, uh, there was no. Way. Was it? Why wouldn't he? Do you know? No, I don't. He it's just so bizarre. I, 
He was just putting his foot down about a lot of stuff. I, I, yeah. And you're not going to fight him on it. <laughs> no, you're not going to fight him on it. No. <laughs> fight him on anything. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Um, so that was, I was involved uh, with an Oscars where the host did not want to do any jokes about the actors or the movies. All uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> what? So I can there relate you go. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. And I just wanted to sidetrack for a minute on SNL because w- one of the characters that you did on that show that i enjoyed most was uh your vincent price Uh, um which i always found so hilarious and i think i had a connection with it because i'm pretty sure and you you seem to know him probably uh, his work better than i do but i remember growing up i feel like my parents had an album that was him reading poetry oh i got that (laughs) oh you betcha good Uh, I think it's called America the Beautiful. It's American poetry. And he does the the the, the hit is uh, Casey at the Bat. Oh my god. He's a big sports guy. Big sports guy. Yeah. He was he was, I don't know, he was selling the uh, the high button shoes in the stands more than he was the players on the field. I'm not gonna attempt it as just there is no joy in mud. Eddie Casey has struck out. <laughs> I actually had a little up speak at the end of it. Pretty great. Yeah. Oh like Paul God. Harvey. Yeah. It's it's good. I would put that in heavy rotation with Sebastian Cabot's uh, Bob Dylan album. Oh, I never heard that. Oh? No. It's Bob, it's him. You know who Sebastian Cabot was? Yes. From Family Family Affair. He was the butler on Family Affair. Oh. And uh, uh <laughs> It's him reading Bob Dylan lyrics. <laughs> oh, oh, melt back in the night, babe. <laughs> Everything is made of stone. There's nothing in here moving. And anyway, I'm not alone. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. Oh, you can find that on YouTube. Good. Oh, oh my God. God. I have so much to look at after this. I know. Um, something else just personally about me. I love and miss Jerry Orbach possibly more than some of my deceased relatives. So I still am just a huge Law & Order fan. And I happened to see the one recently with you and your lovely and talented wife, Annette, Yes, who is more evil than than I am? I Wait, she oh she out she outplotted you in that one. <laughs> yes, oh yeah, she was bad. Yeah, so do you have do you have any memories of working on that show or working with Jerry? Absolutely. Uh, the parts were actually written for us by our friend Lynn Mamet, who was on the staff. Yeah, yeah. And she was always pitching us for stuff. And then finally, she said, "No, I just wrote something for it. I think that I think you guys should do this." And they said, "Yeah, okay." So we we did the show. And the first thing I said to Jerry Orbach was, I love you, because I did. <laughs> I said, I saw you in so many things on stage. I said, in the space of three years, and I said, now check me on this. You did Guys and Dolls at City Center with Alan King. He said, yep. I saw you do Scuba Duba. Yep. I saw you do The Cradle Will Rock. Yep. And I saw you do Floor of the Red Menace with Liza Minnelli. Yeah. <laughs> and I, there was one more, too. I said, how did you do everything in, in that at that time in my life? Got lucky. Oh. <laughs> he, was, he had an anecdote about every one of those shows, and I just listened to him forever. And he also he also said something. He said something that that day. It was the only day we worked with him, I think. Uh, maybe two days. But uh 
we were talking now uh, Nettie and I were talking about how uh you know why actors retire because you, you go you go into a, like a different phase you know you're kind of like insects you know you become some other kind of thing you know Ian McShane of course is like my phase of Palamine and he's my phase he's my hero in a lot of ways one of which is he has managed to age not just gracefully he's managed to become all different kinds of of Ian McShane without ever losing McShane. And so we, we were talking about that and uh, we said, well, I don't understand why actors retire. And Jerry said, Not, just, boy, me neither. He says, me neither. When my last day, just take me off the set and just right to the cemetery. That'd be fine. Yeah. He did. Wow. He did. Wow. He did. He worked on that show basically until, you know, he was, he was about a month, to pass about away. a month before he died. He was, he was wow. That's amazing. Loved him. Loved him. So now let's let's talk a little bit about uh, Mighty Wind, which got you the, all these awards and nominations. Um, you wrote such beautiful music for, as Goldie said earlier about Spinal Tap, like listening to it, the music is great. That song uh, that I know, you know, obviously Kiss at the End of the Rainbow was the one that mm -hmm. got you the uh, Academy Award nomination. But there's a song on there, When I'm Lying Next to You, and that mm. song is so beautiful. It yeah. reminds me of Till There Was You. Yeah. You know, oh. it's Perfect. like such a nice song. So, And you got to work with your wife writing a lot of this stuff. Yeah. So what was well, that, that like? Song, that song was written by Eugene. Okay, oh. I thought that was yeah. you. Now, here's how it went. Uh, Nettie and I wrote Potatoes in the Paddy Wagon. Yes. And uh, uh, Kiss at the End of the Rainbow. And we wrote the Sea Shanty with uh, with C.J. Banston. What's a spritzel yard? What's a spritzel yard? What is it? <laughs> he just got a copy of Master and Commander and went through it for, for, uh, for, you know, stuff we could just, we have no idea what a spritzel yard is. <laughs> oh, damn it. Yes. Yeah, and uh, yeah. And so we just kind of picked stuff at random. And also uh, the, a whale doesn't have a fur below. Furbolo <laughs> petticoat. Is it what? Petticoat. Oh my God. Furbolo. That's what furbolo means. Wow. But it sounded nautical. So yeah. furbolo fur of the wily whale. It just became, it just, yeah. Oh my God. That's amazing. Yard, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, so I, my memory of seeing that movie, I went with a friend of ours, Goldie, Ted Jessup, and he and I, uh, got stoned in the subterranean parking lot of the Lemley Fo Sunset Five. And we went up to watch the movie. And I, I mean, I thought I was going to pass out from laughing at that movie. That scene where you guys are talking about your early career and how the record company was cheaping out and they didn't even put a hole oh, in one of the yeah. records. Like that, <laughs> uh, th that to me was just the, the, absolutely a peak of comedy. Pretty amazing. And we had heard it before. That was just something Chris... He just pulled out of his ass, and it was <laughs> wow. And then, and then Harry, Harry said, "But if you centered it and got the, you could have a pretty good time." Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I loved all that. And a, a funny side note uh, of that is, uh, my mom loves folk music, so yeah. I told her after this movie came out, she was always buying DVDs, and so I sent her the DVD of A Mighty Wind. I said, "I really think you'll enjoy this." So she called me a couple of days later. She's like, I watched that movie you sent me. She mm -hmm. said, and I was enjoying it. And then I realized halfway through, they're making fun of these people. <laughs> she, just, she didn't get it at all. Well, I don't think there's any time we trash anybody in that. Film. No. You know, no. Is, we all want to slap Bob Balaban in the head. I mean, of course. just generally we want to slap him in the head. 
and only Mike Hitchcock got to do it. Uh, <laughs> unbeknownst to Bob, it was. I think it's a very beautiful moment. Great reaction. Uh, yeah, but I mean, like you say, Gene Levy's character writes this amazing song when I'm lying next to you, but his character is this incredibly tragic. Yes. Character. But he's hysterically funny. And he's just really, he really found that that line. I thought he was brilliant in that film. He was Catherine's brilliant. always amazing. Uh, you know, amazing. Uh, yeah. Amazing, amazing, amazing. So, I mean, you know, we could spend so much time talking about all those and best in show is fucking phenomenal. And you, and you two, you and uh, your partner in uh, best in show, John Michael Higgins, you guys were the, the by far the most regular couple in that oh yeah movie. oh we were yeah. the most successful couple yeah oh, it's true it, it's just all so great and and you've given us such a gift with all of these movies that you can I just pick say. one and watch and just enjoy um but i want to skip ahead even a little further because you've been something very you generous. didn't enjoy <laughs> <laughs> right, dude, i always wanted to talk about something i really really i really hate. contrast what the hell were you thinking when you did with an opposing this? viewpoint you are we are in the presence folks of a uh celebrity jeopardy champion right now oh wow um now do you remember who you were playing against in yes, the final I, round well it was the fourth it was the third time i had done the show uh and the, uh, the 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 final was against Jane Curtin and Cheech Marin. <laughs> now Cheech, he said, "Oh man, all this he doesn't remember a thing. He remembers everything." Oh, very God. very smart guy, and very and he was he was on the money, and it was a it was a two day affair, as they like to say. <laughs> yeah, and um, I lost. I didn't get the last question, the last final Jeopardy, oh. but I had made enough money. The previous day, so that together it worked out. Wow! Yes, and I won a million bucks for the for the Myeloma Foundation, and yes. they sent me a nice plaque, and they named a, a scholarship after me. It was very wow. very cool. Oh, that's that's yeah. awesome! That's awesome! That's a an, another great feather in your cap. And now <laughs> to bring it closer to present day, Chuck McGill, um, this character on Better Call Saul is is so awesome, and you you really inhabit this character with such is it freeing to play a character who is inherently unlikable well i don't think you can play an unlikable character who who's being unlikable for a reason or it would be less interesting to do so right uh there was no question that chuck was correct about a lot of things there's no question uh as to whether chuck played by the rules until he didn't Yes. Uh, he was a very, very smart lawyer who kind of had some short circuits. Yeah. You know, his, mommy did, his mommy didn't love him enough. Well, as the way I always put it, uh, I made my mom proud. Jimmy made her laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I mean, in her, her and deathbed scene. You, can, you can't. If you don't have that, then you miss it all your life. Yeah, that that deathbed scene of the mother was just heartbreaking when you're there and and she's shouting out Jimmy's name and and then you can't even I don't tell, tell you can't tell him which was uh was all so well done. Um wow. and I remember you by the way uh from from Mr. Show uh having a, a role on that and I wondered is that where you made your connection with Bob Odenkirk? Uh yeah, uh, yes. It was interesting cuz I met I've told this story before, so he won't mind. I've, I've told it in front of him. 
But in 94 or so, when I was doing SNL, he was one of the guys who would drop by sometimes. He had written on the show up until very recently, but he would come by. He was seeing Janine Garofalo, uh, I think, for a part of the year. And um, but anyway, he was occasionally in the room, but I never was never introduced to him. You know, I, he would say something funny and I would laugh. But there were six or seven, you know, guys in the room and uh, people in the room. So uh, I, I this happened maybe twice, maybe three times. And then um, at one point uh, I went over to him because nobody introduces each other anymore. I went over to him like, you know, a uh, gentleman. And I said, I, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm Michael. And, and, and he goes, uh, and I reached to shake his hand and he took my hand and he went, yeah, we've met like three times. <laughs> Meaning like, oh, why are you introducing you? Did you not see me here before? Yeah. And he was a little, a, a little miffed about it. <laughs> so a few years passed, I went to a Star Trek event of all things and he was there and Mr. Show was now on. It was the funniest thing on TV. So and funny. I went and I told him, I said, man, we worship at the shrine of Mr. Show at our place. And uh, so we had a nice chat there. And then, you know, maybe a week later, they called and said, could you, could you come and do, do an episode? Oh, and then I did, you know, then I, uh, I, I got to know him a little bit there. And then I saw him occasionally with the with the credibility the newly con reconstituted or mm -hmm. uh, we were now a, a trio because uh, Richard Beebe had left the act. But it was David uh, Lander, Harry Shearer, and myself. We did a couple of sketches uh, as the credibility gap. We did a, a couple of appearances, and he and he came to them, and uh, you know wow. he he sort of really liked the scene you did. It was really good. So you know things were kind of okay again. And then uh, I, this this Saul thing happened. I was doing uh, a show. I was doing uh, All the Way, where uh, Brian Cranston played LBJ. And we're about to go on stage at one point, me and and Brian. And he turns to me and he goes, "Yeah, they're going to call you about that. You should. You're going to you're going to play his brother. They really want you to do it." I said, "What are you?" We're on. I, <laughs> and of course, he's on for the rest of the play. At the, at the break, I say, what are you talking about? He says, no, they're doing a prequel to Better Call Saul, and they need somebody to play his brother, and they 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 want to use you. I had worked with Vince Gilligan on X-Files, and he always called me to do stuff. And I was never able to. I was always on my way to, I was doing a lot of theater at the time. And uh, so, yeah, so they called, and we had a nice conversation. And they said, yeah, he's got this problem. He, he is allergic to electromagnetic fields. Yeah. And so he doesn't leave the house and he doesn't have any electricity in the house. It sounds really interesting. Yeah. That's all I knew. I didn't know that he was the enemy until just before you did. <laughs> From the fifth show, he said they, they called and, and Peter Gould and, and uh, Vince called and said, yeah, we wanted to fill you in on a little something. <laughs> wow. And they admitted that a lot of it was due to the way Bob and I were working together. So that it inspired great. them to think, well, what if he's what if he's not just Jimmy's problem? Because originally it was like, this is somebody for Jimmy to take care of. This is the way he's a grown up. He's right. manipulating everybody else around him. But here's this this bit of family that he has. Right. And they started building on that. And they started and they said, here's what it really is. Wow. I said, man, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still it's, you know, I played it very close to the best because like I say, 
I don't think a bad guy is interesting if he makes his bad guy plans on camera. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, that's the yes. Marvel villain. Yeah. Uh, you know, I love Marvel villains, but it's a different thing. It's it's a human being with real flaws and real and an enormous an enormous social problem that he made into a medical problem because he was a little bit yeah. off. Well, it all just came off so well and I mean all the things we've just talked about, you you know, you made the joke about if you had died right after Spinal Tap, nobody could say that you were only one thing. And now, having gone through all the rest of it, you are so many things, and you did all of them just so well. So, th- first of all, thank you for coming on this little podcast yeah, to talk to us. I mean, yeah. it's uh, beyond a dream for us. We're thrilled to have you. And thank you for just the countless laughs over the years. It's just been been wonderful. It's been it's like I'm like living a dream right now. So yeah. thank, thank you so you much for being thanks here. Thanks for saying that. I'd say it was my pleasure, but it's also my job. <laughs> <laughs> they paid me. They paid me. Big, big Not for All right, well, <laughs> Oh. I, we made it through. I feel like the, 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 mar- the marathoner who shit herself at the finish line, <laughs> but we made it through. I cannot believe we just great. talked to Michael McKeon. Yeah. Boy, was very he, he what was a nice guy too. So nice, yes. and those yes. stories. I feel like I feel like he told some stories on here that he's never told before. I think or, so too. Yeah, maybe only his, his like speech is impeccable. It yes. is. And his yeah. singing voice. It's kind voice. of a fuck you to my sloppy speech. I know, <laughs> I know me too. You're I, good. We got we got mush mouth compared to that guy. His, yes. Oh, nice diction, Mike. When he yeah. started singing, <laughs> when he started singing, weren't you? I wanted him to keep singing. I know. I Voice ro- of an ro- angel. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and I mean, let's face it, the star of probably the funniest movie of all time, and we just talked to him. Oh yeah. God, that Bring was him fun. Back. All right. Anyway, the show must go on. So <laughs> let's get into a portion of the show we like to call top five. Top five. Beautiful us. All right, JC, this was your topic. Let's yeah. tell the folks what we're top five and about today. Top five things to bring while traveling. Yes. I don't know. Did I go I for it? Probably rock. Said that. Okay. So number five, um, instead of a blanket of sorts, I like to bring a large turtleneck on the plane so that I can mm-hmm. wear it either on my lap or if I'm super cold, I wear it like a blanket on oh, the uh, plane. So- we already have overlap, but not the kind usually. Oh, wait, what? Oh. <laughs> you said you wear it on your lap. But uh, I also wear it on as a shirt as well. But anyway, number. I look so stupid in a turtleneck. I can't I, do it. No way. I don't believe that. <laughs> so stupid. Oh, I'll <laughs> try to wear one at some point. I don't yeah. have one. I don't own one. I look so bad. I doubt it. Used to it. be my jam. I used to love turtlenecks. Oh, I could see. I could see you both in turtlenecks. I think you could both oh, yeah. pull it up. Okay, number four is. I mean, my iPad. I can't, I have, yeah. I have, I just, duh. Yeah. duh, it almost felt too obvious. Yeah. Um, number three, some type of recording device, usually my, mm. my uh, Apollo, if I'm like with Stu, just in case we just want to put something down. I don't know. Oh, it's okay. one of those things. Kinky. No, no. Audio oh, recording. Oh, not that. Jeez, not that. Okay. The... <laughs> Sorry. My mind. The iPad could function as that, if the what you're oh. talking about. If you... Oh, wow. <laughs> anyway, number two, my uh, 
sleep herbs, the things I cannot sleep without <laughs> them. I need them. <laughs> you do you ingest them or they're just sitting there? No, no, no. I ingest them. I snort them. Okay. No, I'm just kidding. I t- they're capsules <laughs> that I take every night. I can't sleep without them, but I don't like sleeping pills. So I just need something to help me get over the yeah. hump to fall asleep. And I've mm-hmm. forgotten them and stayed up. I stay up all night if I don't yep. have them. Yep. My number one, this is a bit odd, but I cannot travel without charcoal pills. This is, oh, if you have any, pooping? well, for any type of tummy ailment, even if it's like, if you are, have something and you're like, oh, I've got my stomach's kind of bothering me, any kind, instead of taking Pepto or any of those things, charcoal pills. Okay. It doesn't right. disturb the, the gut biome. It just, it's the best. I'm just All right. Saying. I'll take All it right. from you. Yes. I believe it's my turn. It, it is. is. So this is a saying of mine, number five, always pack enough underwear as though you're going to shit yourself twice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's a good one. I should have had that too. Just a, it's a nice little magnet <laughs> put on your fridge. Yep. Uh, number four thing I bring when traveling is I bring a piece of clothing I never wear here. Ooh, I try I out that. a new something. Wow. Yeah, you could be a new guy in a different I do. Country. I'll like, I might wear like a Hawaiian a shirt or a tank top or like a bathing Ooh. suit that's a little shorter or something. Yeah. Yeah. Stock or a curveball. You should try yeah. a turtleneck. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number three, and I bring this to avoid the iPad, I bring my Kindle. Ooh. Yes. No one's going to steal a stupid Kindle also. So. Oh. By the way, all this, talk, all this talk of turtlenecks, is there a turtle dick? Can we, is there something we can wear a turtle dick? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, I'm just saying. The just... turtleneck makes your neck seem longer. Maybe a turtle, okay, never mind. Okay. <laughs> Number two. Yeah. This is, for people with kids, it's a little bit of a travel hack, because sometimes the hotel TV doesn't have stuff your kids want, etc. You bring an Apple TV. Smart. And a cable. Uh-huh. It's yeah. not very big. That's smart. And then you've got all their TV. That's quite oh, smart. That's very smart. And quite number smart. one, Ooh. I bring tons, and I mean tons, <laughs> of $5 bills. And Ooh. I keep them Tip. on me, and Tip. I just throw Tip. them at whoever. <laughs> if I see a bird <laughs> I like, I stick one in its beak. <laughs> I just, if I'm encountering anyone, the minimum they get. It's is five. five bucks. That's really Love smart. That. Love that. And then suddenly everyone, everyone's treating you nice. Yeah. I'm going to take your advice <laughs> you on that one. You may have to up that's that really to good. 10. No, you do. No, but that five, you can with fives. You can yes. go up oh, yeah. to 20. You, you can, they oh, can feel yeah. that it's thicker. Or, yep. But at least five, yes. it's not a one. Yes. Yeah. So you just go like, hey, you did something. You brought me a bottle of water. Five. Here you go. That's great. Good Very list. Smart. Good list. Okay. Here's my number five. Your sense of adventure. Oh. I always forget this, though. I always <laughs> forget it. I never remember, but I, I mean to. Uh, number four may seem obvious, but it's something I often forget. Sunglasses. Oh, yeah. Sunglasses. Yes. Bring your nice sunglasses. Number three, despite uh, JC's uh, charcoal attack earlier, <laughs> I bring Pepto. Yeah, if you've got I recommend. Number two, along the line of your herbs, pot gummies, so uh, I can fucking sleep oh, when, the, when the time is way off. I need. I need and what's to the chew dosage? One. 
the dosey dosage. Yeah. I, I never know. I, oh. I never know what it is. It's just there, and I'll take half a gummy before I go to bed, and it's like, okay, I can go to sleep. Indica, indica Number couch. one, if you've known me, you know I am obsessed with this item. I, I will say I am addicted to this item. Uh-oh. Q-tips. Oh. Bring real American Q-tips because the, the hotel ones just bend oh, and have yeah. no satisfaction. You get the good American ones, you're, you, you can really work it out in there. So that's my number wow. one. Wow. weird as it is. <laughs> it's good. Um, all right. Now let's talk about next week's top five. Yes. My topic, we're, we're right around Halloween here. Hmm. So my topic for next week is top five scary endings. The top oh, five scary shit. endings of anything. It could be a book, TV show, probably a movie, but just top five scary endings. Okay. And that'll be next week. And now let's end our show as we do every week on a high note. Wow. Yes, Tom and Max. Beautiful. Well, I have a strange high note this week. Okay. Um, you know, there, as Goldie uh, referred to uh, earlier in the show, we all know that there's this horrible situation going on in Israel and the Middle East right now. And so that certainly is not a high note, what's happening. What has been happening in my home is that Tal's family, uh, a lot of them are from Israel. She still has family in Israel who are thankfully safe um, at this time. But I feel like I, as an American Jew, have had this sort of interesting kind of eyebrow-raised relationship with Israel my whole life, where I just sort of don't have a connection to it. I feel like, you know, oh, God, why there's another problem over there. But Tal and I really connected about this situation this weekend, uh, and we had some tough conversations that ultimately led to a greater connection between the two of us, where now we are fully on the same page about the horrors that are happening there. And it has really opened up a whole new line of dialogue between the two of us. So amidst this tragedy in the Middle East, uh, my wife and I have created a, a stronger bond uh, between each other. And I feel like that's worthy of a high note. Oh, that's lovely. Okay. JC? Okay, I can go. I feel um, like now we're somber. Yes. Mm-mm. Okay, I'll go. You brought it up. <laughs> Uh, oh, so, so you weren't going to do that? <laughs> <laughs> I was. Look at him. I, he did his high note. Now he's checking his phone. Yeah. What an, check, what an we, asshole. Uh, we have a table read coming up, and I'm getting tons of texts from people. I have who a table read, too. Oh, yeah. my God. Okay, well. Just um, a little inside baseball, guys. <laughs> After you do your high note, you can check your phone. <laughs> I, I didn't even hear what you said. What's that? Well, I'll go. I'll go then. Okay, okay, you go. My high note this week is I just got back from visiting my parents uh, out east, and there was a family reunion. My dad is the oldest of 10, and all the siblings, eight boys, two girls, all of them showed up with, and all most of the cousins except for three of us were there, and the last time it was this big, it was 1983. Ooh. And for, so it's 40 year reunion of a family reunion and it was incredible. And I learned even more about that side of the family. And I just, I got to see my, 
my favorite uncles, and also uh, one of them being a Patrick Bozak who listens to our podcast. Hello, Patrick. Uh-oh. This oh. is why we're so big in the Philippines. <laughs> no, <it's> Bozaks, Bozaks, <laughs> Bozak. Oh, Bozak Horseman. I love that last name. <laughs> um, okay, but yes, that's my high note. Uh, okay, well, I'll complete the familial high note. I'm, I, I, I hate when you do this, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to make oh. the high note my wife. Nice. Yeah. Uh, just yes. that you know step, we've been step, we've step, yeah. Step. yeah we've we've had a, a, you know. Listen, we've had our ups and downs, but our anniversary was last week, Happy 14 years, and we're definitely heading into an up cycle, yes. um, and things have been going really well. She's been making a big effort, and I really very much appreciate it. So, That's you know, That's nice. I, I'll say I'm not going on The Bachelor anytime <laughs> <Yes>. soon. <That's laughs> nice. the, the, the Brass Bachelor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> The uh, that's great. Well, those Yay. are all all good high notes. Yes. And boy, again, thank you, Michael McKeon, for incredible. coming on and, and talking to us today. You blew us away. Thank you all for listening. Thank you two for being awesome. And we will talk to you again next week. We gotta talk after after this place. <laughs> <laughs> That fucking robot.